Welcome, I'm Doug Harris, and this is End Times Truth, the monthly program that seeks to explore everything concerning the period called the end times, and looks at the various events that will take place, the myths and the facts, that we can discover both what is happening and how it affects us. We'll be looking at many of the emails that we get in that contain, I guess, what we call conspiracy theories. Are there any truth to them? Is there something we should, underneath it all, be really looking at? For instance, are there really hidden acts of the government and are they trying to bring in a new world order? The Antichrist, well, a lot of people think they know who he is, but such a difference of opinion. Is he alive? Is he here? What's going to happen when he finally takes power? And aliens and UFOs, are they real or are they counterfeits from the enemy? Or are they really a warning from God? These are some of the things we'll be investigating in future programs. We'll be arranging to uh, have Skype interviews and videos from some of the people around the world that are experts in the whole area of end times. What are they saying? What do they feel the events are next going to happen? What do they feel that the events that are taking place now really mean? What should we be expecting and looking for? And very importantly, we will be looking at Scripture. What does the Bible teach us about end times? And how does it uh, say to us that we should be living our lives in this period of time? How does it affect our daily living? These are all the things we will be looking at. But what of today? Well, today... We want to take an overview of this period, of the events that are related to the end times. Now, some feel that they can really be absolutely specific, very clear and very detailed in the events, how they occur, when they occur and what we should be looking for. Chuck Missler is one such person. So let's have a look at what, how he sees the events of the end times. The order of events, the 70th week we've talked about, obviously. The Harpazo occurs sometime prior to that, and we don't know how much. And uh, so we've really, we've, gone, we've covered all this before, the Great Tribulation and so on. Armageddon is what it ends with, and that gets interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that it involves Satan being bound. His cohorts, the first and second beasts of Revelation 13, are thrown in Gehenna, not Hades, Gehenna. And uh, Satan, though, is bound for a while, for a thousand years. And at the millennium then, uh, there's these 1290 and 335 days that everybody asks, are they show up in Daniel 12? What do they stand for? We're not sure. A lot of conjectures, nothing, nothing with any persuasive uh, the weight on it that I've been able to find. But uh, we have the sheep and goat judgments and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released. And he succeeds in getting the world to rebel against God and then gets finally put down. 
I was once on a speaking platform of Albert Israeli, and we got a discussion in the green room, and he asked me an interesting question. He says, what is the most evil of all the dispensations? We have all the classical seven dispensations, if you've studied that. Which one is the most evil? And he argued, interestingly, that the millennium is. And I was surprised, because we sort of think of that as a utopian period somehow. Not really, because there's no shortages. No, there's no need, there's nothing, all the needs are met. There's no shortage of the Word of God. And there's, there's good justice and it's ruled and all that. And yet, at the end of a perfect administration, we rebel again with no excuse this time. See, that was his point of view, and it was an interesting point of view. I never thought of it that way. In any case, the millennium is a final test of humanity in some sense. And at the very, very end, we have a number of things. There's a final rebellion that Satan succeeds in leading and he, when he's released. And there's another Gog and Magog event. Many people get confused because of the Gog and Magog reference back there in Revelation 21 um, with the Gog and Magog event of Ezekiel 38. Now, um, there is obviously the view that it part of Armageddon, and I have a difference of view there, but that's not the point. What many people overlook is that there's a, it's become an idiom. Now, how can Magog survive a thousand years? Because it's, it's an ancestry, it's an, it's an ethnic root. Gog is a demon title. You don't discover that in the English translation of the, of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But if you look at Amos chapter 7, verse 1, in the uh, Septuagint, you discover that Gog is the king of the locusts. And we know that locusts aren't literal locusts, they're demon locusts, because of Proverbs 30, verse 27. And uh, we didn't get that in the book, we probably should have, so you could track those things down. But in any case, the point is that Gog is a demon title. That's how he can survive a thousand years. So I believe there's two Magog, Gog and Magog events. There's the first one that occurs, of course, uh, prior to Armageddon. And there is a... Uh, that becomes an idiom that's echoed, if you will, at the end of the thousand years. And that's our, that's our view. Now, there's other good scholars that have a different view, but I share that with you for what it might be worth. And so, and of course, the, the real, the big climax is the great white throne judgment. The judgment of the unsaved dead are included in that, of course. So that's a big to-do, the great white throne. Don't confuse it with the other judgments that we'll talk about. And that's then followed by a new heavens and a new earth. And let me underscore that. It's not just you and I that are redeemed. Heaven is, is a new heaven. One that didn't have Satan around. See, it's a lot going on cosmically, far beyond our imagining. There's a new heavens and a new earth. So this one's going to burn. And uh, now that we're beginning to discover, if, if David Bohm is correct, and if some of the experiments in in uh, Europe are correct, in the atomic accelerators are worth, they're beginning to give credence to the idea that the universe is some kind of super hologram. Well, the, to the extent that they confirm that, that's good news for us because that helps us explain the Bible. Because in a hologram, distances are synthetic. The billions and billions of light years are synthetic. And uh, we know that this physical universe is a digital simulation. That, uh, that's when we get into boundaries of reality and all that stuff. So as you have background in that, this seems, not only does, Revela does Genesis chapter 1 read more comfortably, if you know all that, uh, Revelation 21 and 22 also read more comfortably. When all the stars fall from heaven, in terms of modern astronomy, that's crazy. Some of those stars are more bigger than the whole solar system. How can they all fall here? 
But if it's a hologram in the first place, that has a whole different signification. So new heavens and new earth, and of course that's then followed, if you will, by the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And so that's the panorama that Revelation 21 22 lay out for us. And so, um, now, the, uh, that uh, leaves us with some other things to talk about. What goes on during the 70th week in heaven? We've talked about on the earth and the tribulation and the temple being rebuilt, whatever. Up in heaven, what's going on? What is the first thing that happens to you and me after the rapture? Let's assume that the rapture happened tomorrow morning. What happens in the days that follow? Not on the earth, with us in heaven. The answer, the first thing is, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, is the Bema Seat of Christ. We're all going to face a final exam. And by the way, we want, we'll talk about that in session 6. But to relieve the suspense here, let me point out that everybody present at that judgment seat will be saved. Or they, that, that's, everybody there saved, because their salvation was resolved 2,000 years ago on a cross. Their salvation's not the issue. Their fruit-bearing is. I won't say works, because that confuses people. And our fruit-bearing is going to be assessed. And some people will be rewarded, and some people won't. Okay, inheritances can be lost. We're going to get into all of that on session six. But the other thing, of course, is the marriage of the Lamb. I want you to notice something here. Don't Well, first of all, there's, there are here three judgments to understand the differences. The Bema seat we'll talk about in session six. The sheep and goat judgments we'll summarize just briefly, but you can check it out in Matthew 25 yourself. Recognize there's three groups of people, the sheep, the goats, and my brethren. Jesus appraises the sheep and the goats as to how they treated his brethren during the tribulation. The ones that helped, they didn't realize they were being a blessing, but they helped, they are the sheep, and they get rewarded. The ones that didn't help the Jews in the crushing experience called the Great Tribulation are going to be judged. They're going to be judged by works. That's a scary thing from the point of Pauline theology, but we're beyond that now. We're outside. And of course, the Great White Throne is a whole other thing. But those three judgments, you need to understand the differences. And a great, the Bema Seat, of course, is 2 Corinthians 5.10. There's the key reference. Rewards, crowns, and assignments. And we'll talk more about that. And the call of the bride. There is a suspicion. I won't say it's a teaching, because it's very controversial. And a lot of good scholars don't agree with me. But I personally believe that the body of Christ and the bride of Christ are not synonymous. And we'll talk more about that in session six. And uh, so... The sheep and goat judgment is in Matthew 25. That takes place on the earth, and there's three separate parties involved, as I mentioned. And they're mortals that are judged on the basis of how they treated the Jews during the tribulation. That's what he says, and you can check it out yourself. And of course, the great white throne is the big deal at the end of the millennium of the unsaved dead, among others. Well, there would be others that uh, do not agree, maybe many others that do not agree with being able to put those uh, events in such a clear-cut order. But we'll be looking at some of those things in future programs and finding out what the Scripture says and what different people actually feel about that. But right now, we want to start with an overview 
of uh, the, the, this whole area. And so we're going to read some scriptures. We're going to read some scriptures from 2 Timothy and, first of all, from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read the phrase, the latter times. In 2 Timothy 3, we read again a different phrase, last days. Now, do these two phrases um, relate to the same person, period or does one follow the other? But before we look at the fact that there are some crucifixions, true Christians who believe that, there are others who do not actually believe we're in the last days. What do they think about the days we are living in? And what do they think of the end times and when it will start? I asked John Tancott what such people actually believe. where we read about latter times. We've looked at 2 Timothy 3.1, where we read last days. Now, are, are these talking about on. different time periods? And where in this period called last days are we? Okay, I, I don't believe we're talking about different things. And even though there are different words used, so in, in fact, the, you'd be surprised how many different 
ways the Greek says last days. There's at least four that I found in the New Testament. Um, so I don't think there's any material difference. I've, I've looked at a number of commentaries. I've checked the, the grammar. Uh, and even though there are slightly different words used, there is no significant difference. I don't think they're talking about different time periods. Now, what I would say is that uh, end times for many people would be sometime in the future or perhaps currently just before the return of Jesus. But I believe that the New Testament teaches that the end times actually started uh, with the coming of Jesus, particularly the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the, the whole period of time from then until the return of Jesus, uh, I, I believe, and this is how I understand the scriptures, is that they're all called the end times. There, there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, which talks about us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages or the end times or the last times has come about. So it's not a verse that's usually referred to when people talk about the end times, but 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I think, will give people an extra insight into how those words are used in the New Testament. If as I understand what you're saying, the end times have been going on for quite a long time now. Yeah. Are, are we in the last part of the end times? H how do you see that? Okay, I, uh, I don't think we are in the last part of the end times. Uh, I, know, I know many people would draw a conclusion from 2 Peter chapter 3 where it says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed is coming, they draw from that passage that in some way our activity can shorten the period to the return of Jesus. Likewise, the Matthew 24, 14 verse, good news of the kingdom, preached in the whole earth as a witness, then the end will come. Uh, so they would say that our communication of the gospel of the kingdom will draw the age to a close much more quickly. Uh, Taking it as a, a basic question, are we in the last part of the last days? Uh, I don't believe we are. and I, I believe there's a lot more to be done and a lot more to happen uh, within the church. But for those Christians who do believe we're in the end times, what is that period actually referring to? Was it the period immediately after Paul was writing to Timothy? Or is it pointing to some remote time within the future? Maybe still to be in the future. These, among other questions, uh, I put to Nathan Jones of Lamb and Lion Ministries. So, Nathan, thanks for uh, joining us today. We're looking at this whole introduction to end times. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, we read about latter times. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, we read last days. And are, are, are these talking about two different periods? If so, what's the difference and where are we in this scheme of things? Okay, well, uh, the best answer to that is to go to the parable of the weeds, which Jesus had in Matthew 13. And it was a story where Jesus says that, that we're coming up to a great harvest. There'll be a time where the weeds or the unbelievers will be rooted out and the good wheat, those who have been saved throughout history, 
will be brought into the barn or brought into heaven. It was a, a time of reaping and a time of harvest, which that same imagery Jesus uses again in Revelation 14 when he talks about a, a great reaping upon the earth. You can go back to the Old Testament and the prophets use key phrases like latter years. You can find that in Ezekiel 38. And they also use the term last days. And Jeremiah 37 talks about a time of Jacob's trouble. Or you can go in the New Testament, the same thing you're talking about, latter days and last days, is they call it the day of the Lord, Acts 2.20 and 1 Thessalonians 5.2. In other words, it was a, a time of reaping and harvest upon the world. And we know that to be the tribulation. Now, tribulation is a seven-year time period that will befall the human race, the entire planet. It'll be a time just after the rapture where the church is taken up to heaven, where the people on the earth will experience 21 terrible judgments to try to get them to turn back to God and give their life to God. And the focus of the whole thing is on Israel because God wants the remnant of Israel, remnant of the Jewish people, to accept Jesus, Yeshua, as their Savior. So when we talk about latter days, we talk about the days leading up to the tribulation, the church age, the very end which we are in now. It's uh, Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea would define our time period, our age. And it talks primarily the last days, the last of the last days is the seven-year tribulation. So just to get very interesting, so there are two periods there. We've got latter days, which obviously takes a period of time and you're saying we're we're in that period of time to towards the end of the latter days do you feel i believe so yes uh, when you read luke 21 and matthew 24 jesus talked about that in the last days or the latter days the end of the church age which we are in now defined by the church of laodicea an apathetic uh it, it's christianity is very watered down and weak a very apostate which is clearly a sign of the time that jesus said that people would get to the point where it was like the days of noah now before the flood in noah's days people did whatever they wanted to they were totally evil except for noah and his family and jesus said when we see humanity return to the days of noah that would be the last time that's when we'd start seeing the, the rapture of the church would happen and the judgment of the tribulation would fall on the earth. But the actual definition of last days and latter days, I would say totally is, is tied up within the seven-year tribulation period. Mm -hmm. Well, wherever the latter days are, whatever point that we are living in, and many do seem to really believe we're living in the end of, of the latter days, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 goes on to talk about um, people who pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and I guess it becomes very obvious if people pay attention to these things sooner or later they will want to communicate with them and they will want to uh, get closer to that which is deceitful and that which is a doctrine of a demon and so just how can we test out things all sorts of things are said about the end times how can we begin to test these things out what can we do to ensure that we are not led astray well we certainly need to bring everything back clearly to the word of god and if what's being said is clearly found within the word of god then there's absolutely no problem if, however, it's not found within the Word of God, but it's not denied by the Word of God, we may not be able to be so clear, but we can hold those things and say, probably this is true. But anything that is clearly not within Scripture and clearly denied by Scripture, we 
cannot build our future upon it. So we need discernment. And we, it, it talks about diligently seeking. And I hope that's something we'll be able to do in the Scriptures and with others drawing in to help us in future programs. However, even at this point, we are not left helpless because these verses go on to give the antidote to this deception and the accepting of the wrong teaching. We are to be nourished by the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Just how vital is that today? How should we be living in these days? First, Let's hear what Nathan has to say. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 6, we get this phrase about being nourished. And I, I'm very interested in, in, in this phrase. And how do we do that in these days? Uh, because I think nourishment always gives you strength. Nourishment always gives you the, the ability to do things. And, and we're going to face difficult days. We are facing difficult days. We're going to face more difficult days. How do we get nourished to be able to face them? Peter, the Apostle Peter, gave us a great uh, description of that. Second uh, Peter 3, you can find it, where he talks the entire chapter is about the last days and the latter days. And he gives us 10 things that we can follow to be nourished and to exist in these last days, these very difficult days. Uh, number one, he says, recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through our apostles. In other words, remember the words of Jesus. Remember the words of the apostle. Read your Bible is basically what it's saying. Uh, number two, understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Peter was telling us that in the last days, people would say, ah, Jesus isn't coming back. That's nonsense. Don't believe it. They'll scoff at the Bible. They'll scoff at God even existing. And they'll scoff at primarily the creation story. In other words, evolution. Uh, number three, Peter says, do not forget. Do not forget God's promise that he'll return, his salvation, and his patience, that he is patiently waiting for everybody in this age to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior to get saved. Uh, the fourth one, he says, live holy and godly lives. So while we're here as Christians, we're to live holy and godly lives while we wait for his return. And number five, look forward to the day of God. Look forward to the time when we live with God up in heaven with him again. Uh, number six, speed it's coming, he says. Uh, get the gospel out. Share the good news with people so that they may hear the word of God and get saved. Uh, seven, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. You know, Doug, we're here temporarily. This is a temporary home. But our real home is the new Jerusalem, the heaven which will come down to earth one day. And that gives us great hope and that gives us something to look forward to. Uh, number eight, Peter said, be found spotless blameless and at peace with God. Again, live holy lives, be spotless, live at peace. And number nine, be on your guard so you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. In the last days, one of the main signs that Jesus gave that we would know his soon return is coming is false prophets and false teachers. So he says, Christians, be on your guard, be prepared for that. Know your Bible so that you can refute the false doctrines they're teaching. And the last one, number 10, Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace of God. Become more Christ-like. Mm. Those are the 10 Peter gives us. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Uh, it, two things came out to me there. and it's it sort of almost you were talking about a looking back and a looking forward. And it was looking back 
to what God has said in his word, never forgetting what he said, never forgetting what's written down, never forgetting what's there, but also from wherever we are, looking forward to the fact of what is yet to come. As, as Paul says, that this, um, uh, you know, at, at, at this time, what I am going through now is nothing compared with what's to come. And, and I guess th- th- there's two things there. Looking back, looking forward, very important. Amen. Amen. I mean, as hard as the world is now for Christians and growing worse every day, the massacres in Nigeria, the concentration camps for Christians in North Korea, the loss of our freedoms in the Western world, it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse because evil hates God. Evil hates the thought that we represent God and wants to destroy the belief in Christ. But Jesus says, is even as bad as that is and tough as our time period is, it's nothing compared to the tribulation that's coming. Mm-hmm. Well, wonderful words. And even JT, who would believe in a different scenario uh, to Nathan, even he really does understand the need for be, to be nourished by these words of faith and sound doctrine. Let's see what he had to say. 1 Timothy 4, 6, obviously just a few verses on from what we were talking about just now, talks about being nourished. Now, whether we're in the last part of the last days or the middle of the last days or wherever we are, one of the things that we need to be as Christians is nourished. So we have strength. So we have ability to cope with whatever uh, we are are, are facing. Um, How do you see us being nourished in these days to face what we've got to face? Okay, the the translation I have says you will be made strong by the words of the faith. So that made strong, obviously, is the parallel here. Uh, I think the passage, you you can either understand it as what has just preceded those words will explain what it is, or what follows will explain what it is. Uh, Let let me just read back a little bit. I'm reading from the New Century Version. It says, um, it talks about people... Uh, teachings of demons, teachings from false words of liars. He says, everything God made is good and nothing should be refused if it is accepted with thanks because it is made holy by what God has said and by prayer. By telling these things to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You will be made strong by the words of the faith and the good teaching which you have been following. I think that makes sense. Um, and it's tied, I believe it's tied in with the whole section there that Paul is talking to Timothy about. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about um, what God has made clean, let us not make dirty. Where God has said there is freedom, let's not create a law. Uh, and let us be thankful, which is a theme I see throughout Scripture. The idea of the grace of God causing us to be thankful. And that is the, the way to live. And whether we talk about it being in the end times or the end of the end times, I think uh, the advice is exactly the same. Now, the viewers may want to look further on in the chapter, and Paul gives further instructions. I've written down eight between there, verse six, and the end of the chapter, uh, which, which Timothy should do. So I think those can be taken to heart as well. Mm. 
So, so the, the the heart of it are, are are these these good words. In other words, the words that have been communicated to us that 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 is our nourishment. So we should be taking it, drawing it in. Um, those are the that that's the main heart of really what you 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 were saying there. Yes, it contrasts with verse two, where it, it talks about such teachings come from the false words of liars, but we are to believe the good words of God. And it, it does seem that this issue of being thankful, this issue of recognizing the freedom and the liberty that God has given, is a key uh, to living in this uh, these last. Oh, we need in these days not to be concentrating on the things necessarily that are wrong and are going there. We need to be concentrating on that which is right and being nourished by those words. And finally, from the passage that we read in Timothy, um, I want to point out the phrase worldly fables. We are clearly warned against taking on board unconfirmed conspiracy theories and end-time scenarios that only tend to bring fear and do not bring to us the peace of the Lord. This advice warning us off of such things seems to me absolutely necessary when we're dealing with this period called the end times. But what are some of these things, some of these areas that we need to be warned against? Well, first, we're going to hear from JT, and then immediately after, we will hear from Nathan on this issue. Finally, JT, um, verse 7 then goes on to talk about worldly fables. Uh, and, and obviously the believing of these worldly fables aren't, aren't going to do us any good. And, and in, when, in one sense, as you've already said, that compares with the being nourished. We've now got all these worldly fables uh, which don't lead us anywhere and don't strengthen us. What in particular are the worldly fables that you feel we're facing today that we should be careful not to consider, not to give time to? Okay, I think we just need to make sure that we draw the connection with the first century as well, because Paul is writing to Timothy, who was based in Ephesus, and Ephesus was famous for its uh, Diana devotion, Artemis devotion. It was an occult center for, for the world at that time, and Ephesian letters were spells which were cast and magical incantations that people used to repeat. So we can, we can see that Paul is referring to things that were common and current at that time. In terms of applying that into the situation today, well, it changes almost month to month, Doug. Uh, um, whether it's the Da Vinci Code, whether it's the lie that um, that's okay for you in terms of your faith, that's okay for you, but it's not uh, okay for me. That's relativism, which is the spirit of the age. There's the intolerant tolerance that we face, but um, uh, who are we to judge? Don't you dare judge me uh, when Jesus clearly, even though he said, judge not lest you be judged, uh, what he meant was that we have to judge correctly. We can't judge falsely. Our judgment is based on the judgments of God the King who uh, judges rightly. Uh, so these things change. And they've changed in my lifetime, you know, uh, and they're slightly different now to what they used to be. Mm. 
But what we need to be careful of is to see that these things are worldly. They are not that which God has given. They are not these words to be nourished. And we need to define them as they are and step away from them. We are at war. And all Christians need to understand that. And our minds and our thinking is being assaulted every single day. Uh, either knowingly uh, by the, the marketing that we have to face with, but, but far more subtly uh, by the ideas that circulate, which percolate, drip, 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 drip into our mind and our, and our subconscious. And we're slowly shaped to become uh, less aware of what God is saying. I've seen it happening. I honestly believe that many of the well-meaning movements that are taking place within evangelical and charismatic Christianity are, are seductively uh, reducing our ability to stand firm for truth. Mm. JT, as ever, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, Dave, thank you. Verse 7, again, uh, Nathan, uh, I, I, I picked up this whole thinking about worldly fables and um it, we're not to take any notice of them because if we take notice of these worldly fables we're going to be led away from the truth what what do you feel when we're looking at the end times what do you think some of those worldly fables are that can actually not only lead us away from the truth but maybe lead us into fear because we're no longer uh, taking hold of the lord and what he has done I love the uh, NIV 84's uh, translation. It says godless myths and old wives' tales. <laughs> you think about old wives' tales, like when a bell rings, a new angel receives his wings. Or uh, if you put ivy and grow it on your house, you're protected from witchcraft and evil. Or if you put a picture up in your house of an elephant, it'll bring you luck. But only if that picture is facing an open door. I mean, these are crazy things that people come up with that are very animistic in nature. It's that idea that we have to ward off the spirits which are demons and all those are godless myths those are not christians and those are satanic and we need to stay away from things like that but i think doug there are three main deceptions that today that are leading people away from jesus christ and leading them away from god and their salvation and hope and number one is that all paths lead to god jesus in john 14 6 said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me Clearly, Jesus said, faith in him as the Son of God and Savior is the only way to get to heaven. But then you have authors like Paul Young writing The Shack and others who, who offer multiple ideas. It's called universalism, this idea that there's many ways to reach the Father on our own works and our own system, and that's not true. Only faith in Jesus Christ, who did the ultimate work on the cross, is the only way to get to heaven. Uh, the second one is, uh, and this is big, is works-based salvation. Mm -hmm. This idea that we don't need Jesus. We can work our way and do enough good things to get to God. But that's not true. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. And why? Because Ephesians 2, 10 tells us, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God's prepared for us in advance to do. In other words, we aren't created to have to do works to get salvation. Once we are saved, then we naturally do good works. And people get that confused. So no, Jesus did the only work on the cross. There's no works-based salvation. Mm -hmm. And the third one I would say that's one of the greatest deceptions of this time 
It goes along with what uh, Jesus said in 2 Peter 3 about, uh, sorry, Peter said in 2 Peter 3 about scoffers, that, that Jesus isn't returning. There's this general idea that time's just going to keep marching on. God's never going to return. Uh, Jesus isn't going to finally institute justice and law. But the verse says, in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming? He's promised. Ever since our father died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And as the verse goes on, it says, eventually, there's a day of destruction for these ungodly men. So, and we are seeing that. We're seeing a general rejection, both in the secular world and a good part of the church that really doesn't believe that Jesus is returning. But he promised he's going to return and he will return. Mm. Great. As ever, Nathan, really appreciate your input. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. So Nathan uh, underlines the fact that there is only one way to God, that is through Jesus. But what are some of the worldly fables, or as he trans his translation put it, godly myths and old wives' tales that are being put in the way of us seeking the Lord and building our faith on Him and on Him alone. Well, we'll be looking at some of those in future programs and how they could affect us for bad rather than for good. But let's give you some headlines of some of the things that we will be looking at. First of all, UFOs and aliens. Uh, is there something spiritual about them or are they all to be avoided? Were there really two or three hovering over the Olympic ceremony or was it just the blimp anyway? And how about the UFO over the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Well, take a look for yourself. Was it real? Was it a firework? Was it Superman? Well, we'll take uh, a look at some of those things in uh, the future. But while we're still on uh, the whole subject of aliens, what about the Catholic Church saying that they might even need to change their theology? Reverend Jose uh, Gabriel Funes, uh, astronomer and Jesuit director of the Vatican Observatory, says this. The vastness of the universe means 
it is possible there could be other forms of life outside earth, even intelligent ones. Just as we consider earthly creatures as a brother or a sister, why should we not talk about an extraterrestrial brother? It would still be part of creation. Such a notion does not contradict our faith. And the Catholic Church has even held conferences about the whole subject, and at least one of them was in the Vatican, as this clip shows. We may never discover the famous alien E.T., but it may surprise a lot of you. It did certainly surprise a lot of us. The Vatican. The Vatican is looking to the heavens for signs of life. Yes, David. 400 years after the church locked up Galileo for challenging the view that Earth was the center of the universe, the Catholic Church is exploring if life exists elsewhere in the universe. And astronomers, physicists, and priests are in Rome this week to debate the age-old question, if we are or are we really alone? And Dan Gilgoff covers religion for Yes News and World Report. Dan, uh, early this morning, this 8 o'clock, David and I are all happy about this story. This is our story. We love this one. <laughs> Dan, by the way, is the author of The Jesus Machine. So, you know, so many times the Catholic Church especially, and religion in general, is seen as being behind the times. It seems like a very progressive conversation to be having. What are they really looking at here? It is. You know, the church has come a long way. As David mentioned, you know, they locked up uh, Galileo. Before Galileo, about 35 years prior, there was actually an Italian philosopher who was burned at the stake uh, for suggesting that there was extraterrestrial life. Now, here we are, 400 years later. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the church is inviting these same exact folks, this guy, the same type who was burned at the stake, to the Vatican for this conference um, on whether the extraterrestrial life exists. I think it really speaks to this pope and this pope's uh, efforts to uh, reconcile faith and reason. And this is a, a high-profile way that, that he's trying to do this. There was a statement from Reverend Jose Briel Funes, and it says, just as there is a multitude of creatures on earth, there could be other beings, even intelligent ones created by God. Mm -hmm. This does not contradict our faith because we cannot put limits on God's creative freedom. Uh, but, but is there something in the Bible that they can point to? I'm not an expert on the Bible, right. but is there something that might... And David, I know you're surprised to hear that I'm not an expert on the Bible, but is there something that they can point to that would back this up in the good book? Well, you know, it depends what tradition you're talking about. And I think this is really interesting because it points up a divide right now between the Roman Catholic Church who says, hey, we could live and our theology could coexist with extraterrestrial life. You look at the uh, evangelical church in the United States, and by the way, in the United States, say, 40% of the people believe in evolution. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican earlier this year sponsors a conference on the 150th anniversary of Darwin's landmark work. So I think it points out some uh, differences in religious traditions taking different postures um, to science. But in this case, Vatican says, hey, yeah, we could live with extraterrestrial life. God, God's okay with that. You know, Dan, it's so interesting to imagine that, uh, I mean, that, you know, the, the religious people would say, okay, yeah, this is great. This is all part of God's work. But I guess I have a question. You mentioned the, the Pope in particular, Pope Benedict. Is he a UFO enthusiast or alien enthusiast that we know of? No, not, not that I know of. It's interesting, though, because, you know, on the one hand, some of this stuff could be hard to reconcile. The Pope, on his way to Africa earlier this year, says uh, things like um, the spread of condoms could actually expedite the spread of AIDS. Seems to be kind of anti-social science, at least in some ways. And in, and in an instance like this, he's embracing Darwin. He's in, embracing the possibility of uh, uh, life on other planets. And so you see this Pope doing something very interesting, really trying to update the church in one way, like with this 
conference and also really hewing tr to traditions on um, some questions like birth control and, and condoms. So taking the church in different directions when it comes to different issues, but all revolving around science. And what's been the response to this from uh, many Catholics around the world well, as this new spreads that this conference is happening? Yeah, I, I think it's been um, a little bit mixed. There are some um, uh, Catholics in America who feel like the church might be going too far in em embracing science. But I think for the most part, Catholics really pride themselves in a robust intellectual tradition, and the Vatican has long been associated with that itself. And so I think a lot of Catholics are actually proud that in this instance, religion does not seem to be the enemy of science, but actually an ally. Well, they are certainly uh, moving along and we'll be looking at the Catholic Church's position on aliens and UFOs and all sorts of other things. Are there UFOs in the Bible? Are there aliens in the Bible? We will take a look at that. Then what about 666, the mark of the beast? So many theories and wild stories about this. We really do have to take them and put them all into the context of Scripture. But just for now, let's have a look at what Perry Stone has to say. Several years ago, I was preaching in a neighboring state in the 1990s, and they said, you've got to go meet this man. I went and met a man. He is not a Christian, but he was a, um, he dealt with satellites. Let me just say that. And he said to me, he says, I, I can contact the space shuttle right now. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He was in his home. He goes to a computer. He does a few things, and he starts talking to the guys who are in the space shuttle. I thought, this is freaky. How are you doing this? He said, well, look at the big antenna in my yard back there. Look at the big dish. And he was just, he was very open. He said, oh, do you know what they've got in the space shuttle right now? You know what they're testing? I said, no, what? He said, a chip. I said, what do you mean a chip? He said, it's a chip going to go in your right hand or your forehead. I said, oh, come on. He said, no, I'm serious. He said, you want to talk to him? I said, no, that's okay. I said, what are they doing? He said, well, they're doing some experiments with it. He said, it has a lithium battery in it. And he said, one day it'll be put in your hand, your forehead. You won't need money. You'll just scan your hand or they'll scan over top of your head. I said, why the head? He said, well, some people don't have hands. I said, well, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. And he said, but anyway, it'll have information on it. And said, you won't have to have a credit card. You won't have to have money. He said, it's going to go to that. And this was 1996. So I always waited for somebody to give me more updated information. So I get a call. I get a call from a, friend, a preacher friend of mine who is on a plane. Uh, I'm sorry, he had exited a plane. He said, I've got to call you, Perry. I've got to talk to you. So he called me from Florida. He said, I just got off a plane with a man. This medical doctor was coming into a certain city to meet with 3,000 doctors about the new health care chip. And he said there's a health care chip that he's, they've been working on it for several years. Now listen to what I'm going to say. This was May of 2009, and, and when this man said, yeah, there's going to be a health care chip, they're going to put it right in your hand, right above your forehead, and he said it's going to have all your health care information. He said you're not going to have to do paperwork. You just scan your hand. They do a scan of you. It's got everything on there. It's got a digit number, all your information. He said that's where it's going to go. He said now, we've had this for a while, but we've tested it on people, and some blood types reject it. And the government's had us working on this to make sure that all the blood types, and he th I think we've got it perfected. He said, you will have it inserted at your local hospital. And this was the man's exact quote. This was May of 2009. President Obama is demanding we have it done by the end of the year. Now, I want to make a statement, and I, am, I can back it up because I've got the proof of it. The reason President Obama pushed health care through, absolutely demanding that it had to go through, was actually not just about caring for people who need health. 
It was about the healthcare chip. It is a tracking device. Now listen to me. And they make, the reason I know this, right here in Georgia, a man had a meeting with the company that was doing it, and they said, you, it's $10 a month. Add up $10 a month times 12 months, that's $120. Add up over 300 million Americans who have to have it, and add that up, and they're going to make money off the chip. True or not, is 666 the chip that he's talking about there in the hand or, or, or in the head? We will investigate. Don't jump to conclusions. And of course, that would lead us on to the Antichrist. So many people uh, have been put aside as the Antichrist and been determined as the Antichrist. Obviously, Barack Obama comes quite high up in the list there, uh, but uh, also has got plenty of votes is the Pope, Prince William, and Benjamin Netanyahu. So we will be looking at all of those areas. Okay, let's sum up today because what's important what I've shown there's lots of myths there's lots of facts we've got to check them out back in 1 Timothy 4 I want to underline three things first of all the spirit explicitly says it's the only time that Greek word is used in the whole of the New Testament explicit means expressly outspokenly this is from God what's in 1 Timothy 4 is from God not from man it will happen the second thing i want to underline is this that we need to be careful that we are not listening to deceivers we're not listening again the root of that word is roving is imposter we're not leading to those who miss uh, we're not listening to those who mislead us because there are many people out there that want to bring these doctrines in they're enemies of christ they're not always absolutely upfront about it they bring it in very subtly we need to nourish ourselves on the word of god and finally the third thing there just before we sum up completely is we got to have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales do not listen to unconfirmed conspiracy theories bring everything to the word of God. We will be seeking to help you with that, investigating the issues fully, laying out the scriptures before you. Whatever the case and whatever our belief of the end times, let us ensure that we are being constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Spend more time on the truth on the reality than on the issues that are negative and are taking away from us. End times truth, whatever else it is, is this. God is in control. Never forget that. So, till the next time, trust and walk with the Lord and always be ready for what He is going to do. <laughs> 